1990 minivan and it began to kind of jerk. I put power on the gas and it would kind of falter a little bit and so uh, I said I need to take this thing into the garage. So I took it into the garage and uh, I hate taking my vehicle to the garage uh, and because uh, you know they're going to charge you these enormous amounts of money for some simple thing they're going to have to do. And lo and behold, it was a fuel pump that was located in the gas tank itself. They fixed it and the car is back running. And as much as I hate taking my car to the garage, it has to go to the garage from time to time, especially because it is an older vehicle. And older vehicles like older saints and older ministries need maintenance. And I want to talk to you about ministry this morning, and I want to preach a sermon I've entitled, Take Heed to Your Ministry. Ephesians 4, beginning at 11. And he gave some apostles and some prophets and some evangelists and some pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of the ministry, for the edifying of the body of Christ, till we all come into the unity of the faith and the knowledge of the Son of God to a perfect man, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, that we should no longer be children tossed to and fro and carried about with every wind of doctrine, but of the trickery of men and the cunning craftiness and the deceit and the plotting thereof, but speaking the truth in love may grow up in all things unto him who is the head, Christ, from whom the whole body joined and knit together by what every joint supplies according to the effective working by which every part does its share, causes growth of the body for the edifying of itself, in love. Colossians 4.17 And say to Archippus, Take heed to your ministry which you have received in the Lord that you might refi- that you might fulfill it. Hallelujah. I want to talk to you about taking heed to your ministry this morning. I want to consider first of all with you our perspective or our view of ministry. Many people this morning have a mindset when it comes to ministry that this is something that is relegated to a select few. This is something for a, maybe a pastor or some teacher in a congregation. And so they begin to synonymously begin to think of ministry as something, just something for a couple of people, a few individuals, and so on. Many people, as a matter of fact, when you think about a pastor in their mind, they think of a minister. That is something, there's something wrong with that. There's something that's right about that because it implies that everybody else is something other than a minister. It implies that other people that come to a congregation, these are spectators, these are uh, consumers, uh, these are individuals that are just attenders in the congregation. Uh, and so this is, uh, this is a faulty view of life. This is a faulty view of ministry. One of the greatest curses in the religious world is a clergy laity mentality. That is that certain people have great posture and great place, and it limits people to two classes of people. There's the priest, and then there's everyone else. And there's been a horrible fallout through the years because of this mentality that oftentimes finds place in people's minds. And that is the dignity of the local congregation. The dignity of local members of congregations has been stripped, and instead of people being participants in the work of God, they have become spectators in the work of God. And this is something that's sad and it's something that is actually catered to in our performance mindset generation in church world life. The Bible speaks this morning, every believer is called into some ministry. In our text this morning, Ephesians 4, it's the ascension gifts. 
These are individuals that have giftings that God has instilled for the church. This is for the equipping of the saints, for the work of the ministry or service, for the edifying of the body of Christ. Wycliffe speaks of this. He says, these gifts were given by God to the church for the perfecting of the saints unto the work of the ministry. That is, it is the business of all saints, not a few leaders only to carry on the work of the ministry. The leaders are for the purpose of perfecting or equipping believers to carry on this work. Most local churches today do not follow this New Testament idea. It's a common practice to let the pastor do the ministry. Sometimes the pastor temporarily may find it easier to do the work himself than to train others to do it. But his job is to train up workers. In the long run, his ministry will be more effective if he does. And so here's Paul. He's writing to the Ephesians church. He's bringing an illumination of how the kingdom of God is going to be built. And he says, I have set in place certain people that have oversight that are to equip you. This word equip is the idea of taking a bone and setting it back in place. It is like taking a, a net that has been ripped and torn and beginning to mend that net. It literally means to supply what is lacking. And so here's God in redemption. He is going to begin to move through the facility of gifts that He's given unto His church to begin to edify and equip His people that they might find a place within the body of Christ that that body might function, that body might move forward, that body might advance the kingdom of God, and it's the equipping of all the saints. And so this is the job of ministry. Those that are involved in oversight is in the preaching, in the teaching, and the conflicting of hearts, amen, is to begin to cause people to find their place in God that they might be used in the kingdom of God for His purposes and His advancement. We believe in the priesthood of all believers, 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, His special people who were not a people but are now the people of God. Everyone is a minister. Everyone is a priest this morning. I want to tell you, when we advance the kingdom of God, it takes a king, kingdom effort. It takes a, a team effort. It's going to take everyone doing something. Oh, Dick Vermeil, before he uh, coached the L.A. St. Uh, Louis Rams to the Super Bowl, he was a TV commentator for games. He would analyze games. He was analyzing a game that had this incredible running back. But they were losing. And he says, you can't fire a cannon from a canoe. And so if your imagery, you'd have this massive gun sitting in this, this, this tiltering canoe. And as soon as you would fire that cannon, the recoil would cause that thing to flip upside down. And this is what he's saying. He says, you know what? If you're going to have a good football team, it's going to involve a team effort. It's going to involve some chemistry, some unity, some oneness. Amen. To advance what has to go forth. This is true with churches. One great pastor will never cause the kingdom of God to go forth in all its glory and all its power. It is a team effort. The callings of God and the kingdom of God have a wealth of diversity. The Bible speaks, we are the body of Christ. Can the eye say to the hand, I have no need of you? Romans says, not all have the same office, position, function, or operation. This is not some mystical thing. It involves right where we are this morning. Every one of us is to have a function. Every one of us is to have a place. It might be a high profile, but most likely it will be a low profile. 
I was reading the last trumpet. And in the beginning of the trumpet, I want to share this. It was honoring a man named George Kleppel, 86-year-old man who died and went to be with the Lord. It said, George played an important part in the affairs of the Prescott Church. His ministry of helps, 1 Corinthians chapter 12, 28, was a behind-the-scenes ministry and involved him mainly with the packaging and mailing of quarterly publications, the trumpet. He also was helped in the establishing of the audio tape ministry. When Pastor Mitchell asked for special help in putting up conference tents, building a floater, a stage needs, George always made himself available. Now, there's not a whole lot of glory sitting in a basement packing trumpets. But you get your trumpets because somebody understands they had a ministry. There's a wealth of needs in congregations. Tape ministries. Somebody get a video camera and tape outreaches. Amen. Individuals that will enlist themselves to follow up on individuals. Individuals that will begin to allow the creative mind that they have to be used. Amen. For drama. Individuals that have some kind of aptness and the skills of musicians to begin to give up their time and their energies to begin to see that facilitated in a congregation. So inevitably, when we talk about ministry, one of the questions that arises is, how do I know what I'm called to do? How do I discover my ministry? Romans 12 says, if you'll sell out 100% to Jesus Christ and consecrate your life, you will find it. I beseech you, brethren, therefore... By the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable to God, which is your reasonable service. And do not be conformed to this world, but be you transformed by the renewing of your mind that you might prove what is the good, what is the acceptable and perfect will of God. This is why the clergy laity mentality is so so horrendous in our generation. Because immediately, if you don't think that you're called to some position, some high place, Romans 12 begins to totally not be applicable to your life. If you think that some are called and some are not called, this begins to excuse our half-hearted efforts. This begins to allow ourselves to fall into the trap of carnality. Because, I mean, if I'm called, I understand I need to sacrifice. If I'm called, I know that consecrated life. But if I'm just somebody just kind of attending a congregation, you know what, I can kind of do what I want to do, punching my religious debit card, coming to do my honors before God. But the Bible says we're all called. And so Romans chapter 12 applies to every individual. We're to come to the altar of God's sacrifice. And as we consecrate ourselves, the Bible says you're going to begin to prove. You're going to begin to understand. You're going to begin to have an illumination. You're going to find a place where God is going to use your life for eternal significance in His kingdom. You stand before God, there's not going to be two lists, one called, one not. He says, therefore. How many know that you don't start a conversation, therefore? He's reaching back to the wonderful book of Romans. The book of Romans speaks of the depravity the horribleness of man, man's inability to save himself, man who has a tendencies to be vile, man who has the ability to be corrupt, man who is in all of his depravity is hopelessly without God, desperately need God to reach in and save and redeem. 
Romans chapter 5 speaks that you and I are justified by faith. Now we have access to God. We have a relationship with God. We have God moving in our lives. Romans chapter 6 says we have dominion over sin because of the grace of God, His enabling us, His sufficiency within our lives, that we don't have to cower to the old life. We don't have to cower to worldly habits. Romans 7, 8, and 9, these all begin to allude, amen, to God's wonderful provision. Romans 8, that all things in His sovereignty are working in our lives for the good. Nobody will separate us from the love of God. Nothing's going to take us away from the purposes and the intentions of God. Romans 9 and 11 is the mystery and the majesty of God's love. His ability to move in providence. When we don't think He's doing anything, He's behind the scenes. He has everything under control. And so Paul is alluding to this. And he says, Therefore I beseech you, I implore you, I beg of you, won't you please, amen, remove yourself from this world system and begin to consecrate yourself uh, that God might speak to your life, uh, that your life might make significance for all eternity. I don't believe the will of God is found in desperation. God. God. I believe it's found in surrender. And we surrender, we commit ourselves to the process. It's like getting in a river. If you get in a river or an ocean, it'll carry you. So once you make a commitment, I'm going to step into what God has for me, not just my toe. I'm going to sell out to this thing. This is the most important thing in my life, me doing the will of God. And as you do that, there's a progression. He's not saying that you might prove what is the good, the acceptable, the perfect. It's not like, oh, you, you got the good will of God, but He got the perfect one. It's a progression. It's as you are in the will of God and walking in the will of God that God is bringing you to what is acceptable, what is good, and what is mature in His will for your life. That you might prove, he says, if you'll consecrate yourself, that you might prove. That is an imagery from Bible days. They would take coins. The way that they would check the authenticity of that coin is they would bite into it and say, oh, it's real, it's genuine. Maybe for us, it's going to the supermarket and tapping a melon. I tap them. I don't know what I'm doing, but... <laughs> Makes me feel good. Some people do tap them and do know what they're doing. I want to encourage you as you go back to your cities this week. <clears throat> take the initiative. Tap a melon for service. I'm just waiting to hear from God. Maybe God's waiting for you to do something and for Him to tell you not to. I want to look secondly at our heart in the ministry. Ultimately, ministry is a heart issue. You know, our fellowship, we are not the most talented. I'd like to be, but we aren't. We're not the smartest. We're not the biggest. We are the best.
I don't say that in a prideful manner. What will make us and keep us the best is if we'll keep our hearts right. God's primary concern with His ministers is their hearts. First Samuel 16, 7, But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look on the outward appearance or the height or his stature, because I have refused him. For the Lord does not see as a man sees, but for he looks on an outward appearance, man does. But the Lord looks upon the heart. Proverbs 4.23 Keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it springs the issues of life. Here's the counsel of the Word of God. Guard your heart. Protect your heart. Keep your heart. And yet in ministry, you got to give your heart. And so one of the dilemmas of ministry is you have to make yourself vulnerable in life. Because if you're going to communicate life, not just information, if you're going to communicate care, and not just I'm doing this because I have to do this, the heart has got to get involved. And the danger as we get older in ministry is you begin to allow your heart to, to be crushed only so many times, and it's just, whoa. But the unavoidable price tag of ministry is you're going to give your time, you're going to give your energies, you're going to give efforts, you're going to give of yourself, you're going to try to help individuals, and when it's all said and done, they will turn around you and they will do you great harm. Not all, but some. So ministry makes us vulnerable. So there's a choice you have to make. C.S. Lewis said this, To love it all is to be vulnerable. Love anything and your heart will certainly be wrung and possibly broken. If you want to make sure of keeping it intact, you must give your heart to no one, not even to an animal. Wrap it carefully around the hobbies and the little luxuries. Avoid all entanglements. Lock it up safe in the coffin or the casket of your selfishness. But in the casket, safe, dark, motionless, airless, it will change. It will not be broken. It will become unbreakable irredeemable. The only place outside of heaven where you can be perfectly saved from the dangers of all love is hell. You know, Paul said, I spend and I spend and the less I loved, the less I'm loved, the more I love. What a man of God. That's a man whose ability has learned to feed the mouth that bites him. That's a man who has allowed himself to move beyond his own selfishness, his own abilities, his own hurts, his own his own desires, and has moved himself out for the cause of others. And this involves the arena of the heart. I can't control what other people do in life. I can't control the sins that they commit. I can't control the wrongs that they do. I can't control those things. But I can, by the grace of God and the activity of the Holy Spirit within my life, I can control how I handle my heart. The challenge of ministry is to keep your heart right. Jeremiah 17.9 says, The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? Adam Clark says, it hides itself from itself. In other words, you can't calculate, you can't always anticipate or predict. As a matter of fact, we have the potential, beloved, to say, you know, I'll never do that. And five years down the road, say, find yourself doing the very thing you said you'd never do. 
That's within us. So I have a question. If I can trick myself in thinking something's right when it's not, how can I keep my heart from being deceived? It's deceitful. It hides itself from itself. This is what God is going to cause. This is the fuel pump that's going to move from the faltering to something going forward. So I have a few safeguards, I think, that will help us to help us keep our hearts right. If you want to keep your heart right, you have to be brutally honest with yourself. This is why I, I admire people that can admit they're wrong. Oh, I know we don't have too many people here that can do that. That's why I'm preaching this. I admire people that can move beyond, you know, well, I don't know, you know, that, this person, that person, this person. No, you! Psalms 139, 23 and 24, the psalmist says, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. I'm not calling for some twisted, perverted, counterproductive, self-analyzing, self-introspection. I want you to know, sometimes you can look in here, if you look long enough, you're going to find some really ugly things. And if you don't find them, the devil will find them for you. And, and so I'm not talking about that, but I'm talking about you coming before God and putting your heart in His hand and says, God, you have the scrutiny to look at my heart. You can open the door of this corridor and you have the ability to work through this. And when you do that, you are preventing, are you causing a safeguard to come to your life, beloved? Amen. That will begin to, to pull down, amen, the old trickery of your own mind, the old excusing and the rationalizing and all that moves in our own abilities. If you'll simply say, God, here's my heart, scrutinize it, move down the corridor of it, have total right away with it. I believe that's one thing that would help us. It's called being honest. You mean... You don't expect me to come to conference and lower my shield, do you? You don't expect me to come to conference and really be honest. I don't know what God would expect from me. I would think He would want you to come to conference, throw away your front and the veneer and say, God, here I am, I'm a servant of yours, have right away. God's hands are tied if you will not be honest. Another way that God will safeguard us is through His Word. I still believe we're involved in a work of God, not a work of man. We just had the privilege of having the assistant pastor in Nairobi come, Wycliffe, to our services Sunday morning and Sunday night. And I'm sitting there, and he's got pretty good English. I think it's the second time he's preached in English. And he's preaching to our church, and our church had just gone through a little thing. Now I'm sitting there, I'm second row, trying to set the example. And I'm pretty, he's starting to go. But then all of a sudden it began to click. And I'm talking about a man from one side of the world to the other side of the world, steps into a congregation in Ramah. I'm not talking hype. I'm talking equipping. I'm talking about minds being recalibrated to what's truth and what's right. 
in the arena of need. Older Stan in our church came up to me and said, Pastor, did you talk to her, Tim? I said, no, God did. See, God's solution for our heart is He's going to confront us. Paul writes to this man at Chippus. He says, tell a Chippus to take heed to the ministry. Ever think about that? Paul's writing, in that book, he's writing to the Colossians. It's a church he's never visited. And so this is a letter that's written to the Colossian church. And so all of a sudden, whoever is the head of that church is reading that. And all, they, all of a sudden they say, and say to Archippus. Archippus is there. Pretty, pretty confrontational in our sensitive society. You know, I, I find people that are ultra-sensitive and real touchy oftentimes about inquiries about their heart and their life are usually not right. When we, when we get real sensitive about somebody having genuine concern, Paul's genuinely concerned about our chippus. And he's confronting him. Hebrews chapter 4, 12 says, For the word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of the soul and heart and spirit and the joints and the marrow, and it's a discerner of the intents of the heart. And there is no creature hidden from its sight, but all things are naked and open unto the eyes of whom they'll have to give an account. One translator says the word of God, it exposes the very thoughts and the motives of your heart. From time to time, beloved, God is going to pull back the curtains of your heart. And as He does, He's going to ask you a question. Why are you doing what you're doing? Why? What is the real agenda? What is the real purpose? Why are you giving your life to what you're giving your life to? Because it's possible to be doing very good things, even spiritual things, for the wrong reasons story about a flight attendant some time ago. His name was William Cohn. This man had falsified some kind of ID. He would traffic airports, and what he would do is he would go up to other flight attendants, and he says, listen, I'm just another flight attendant, you know, catching another leg to get to the next place. And so he would find an empty seat on the plane. And so while he was on the plane, he would begin to assist the other flight attendants. And so he would, uh, you know, get their little pillows and could I get you some coffee? Can I help you out here? Can I help you out there? And all of his service was done, not because he was some generous or great individual. It was all done because he wanted to keep his cover for a free flight. See, we can do everything right, folks. But I don't believe God's going to give us any more people than we can genuinely care for in life. God this morning is concerned about motives. In Corinthians, he says, Give, not of necessity or of grudgingly, for God loves a cheerful giver. Now, I don't care how you give, but I'm not God. God's looking at the heart. He says, If you're always begrudging me, 
If you're always thinking I'm insufficient to meet your needs, if your security's always wrapped up in your dollar bills, he says, you might give the tithe and some offerings besides, but I want you to know in heaven, that's honorable in one sense, but in another sense, God says, I'm really concerned about how you're giving. Ephesians chapter 2, a tremendous church in Ephesus. It's a church he commends. He says, you know what, you, you have not denied my name. You've tried apostles and found out that they were false. But when it's all said and done, he brings a stinging indictment. He says, but I have somewhat against you, and that is that you have lost your first love. And if you don't come back to your first love, I'm going to remove the lampstand out of your life and out of that congregation. And a lampstand speaks of illumination, but it also speaks of power and impact. You know what happens when we do things and we're ineffective? We think we're doing something wrong. Maybe we're doing everything right, but our heart's not in it anymore. We're not doing it for Him. How many know we're not called to build our kingdom? It's God's kingdom. Ministry is doing everything for the one we love. Now that's the buzzword of our generation, isn't it? Intimacy with Him. Oh, it's just me and the Lord. Uh, I'm getting closer to Him. And you're doing nothing. You know, I, I find a lot of people, they get so close to Jesus... They don't listen to nobody else. There might be other reasons why we do what we do, but we need to keep our priority because I'm doing this for Jesus. A little sign in a flower shop. It said, why don't you take some flowers home for your main squeeze? Why don't you do something in the kingdom of God for Him? Nobody telling you to do it. Just... Jesus Christ, make a sacrifice out of your own love for God, initiate something in the kingdom of God. God's concerned about motives, and He has a way to get a hold of our, us and look at our motives. We're going to have conference reports this week. Your ability to get excited about the reports of God wonderfully working and to be excited about other people's success, even when it might eclipse your own, will determine your motive. See, when our motives are recognition, position, affirmation, you'll find yourself growing real, real weary in the kingdom of God when these things are not present. In other words, we get recognition. Somebody mentioned my name in a report. I got to stand up Sunday morning and give a report. But see, when all of a sudden you find yourself on the backside of the desert, in obscurity, in a foreign land, and there's not all the accolades and the recognition and the affirmation that's so readily brought about, amen, in the business world.
Kingdom of God is not the business world, folks. When those are lacking, oftentimes people find themselves faltering, wondering what's going on. Perhaps this is what Archippus was dealing with. This man's faltering, and Paul says, you know, something's happening. Maybe Archippus is no longer being moved by outward stimuli. Amen. Something's being worked in his heart and in his life, and he's beginning to falter because he's so readily dependent upon outward supports. And all of a sudden, God begins to fine-tune and show you your heart. Why are you doing this? Is it for position? Is it for recognition? Is it so that you can receive the applause from man? Or are you doing it for Him? I got triggered in this sermon by a disciple in our church. We were out eating one time. And it was beginning to dawn on him. Now, I don't know at this point. But it was beginning to dawn on him that he might not be called to be a pastor. This is a crisis. And so I tried to bring a broader brush to the reality of ministry and life. And so I pointed to the finest reference point in all the world, Prescott. I said, brother, there are probably 20 Bible studies in Prescott. Maybe five of those men will ever pastor. The other 15 are serving. He just smiled. It's like he got a release. This was liberating to him. But not always the case. There's other people, it begins to dawn on them, they might not pastor. That fellowship wrecked my life. I can't believe. I, you mean I gave of my time? I gave of my energy? I was on every outreach? I was faithful to the assembly? I sacrificed? I pledged? And, I, and you, you mean I might not ever go out? That's exactly what I mean. You say, well, uh, no, no, no. See, the issue is why are you doing what you're doing? I thought you were doing this for Jesus. Remember Him? Really sad when believers look at consecration sacrifices as a waste of time. I personally think we ought to be faithful, committed, sacrificing, beyond outreaches, whatever, because we're Christians. Not because I'm called or I'm not called. Colossians 3.23 says, And whatsoever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not to men. 1 Corinthians 10.31, Whatsoever you do, do all for the glory of of God. If you're going to accomplish that, you're going to have to make the central priority of your life your own heart. And say, God, amen, I'm going to be brutally honest this week, and God, I'm going to let you have the scrutiny of this, and as I'm doing that, Lord, let your word begin to move through the preaching of your word, and your word begin to move and find place. And let me not justify or rationalize, but help me to be honest. I want to close with fulfilling our ministry this morning. Paul speaks to Archippus, he says, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord that you may fulfill it. Now, apparently, this man's ministry is in danger. He's faltering, he's sleeping, and so he's slipping. And so Paul says, take heed. Wake up, Archippus. Look at what, look, t- take some consideration of your life and what's happening. 
Because ministry this morning is not something that just, just kind of, you know, fulfills itself. We, we live in a very naive generation that think that, you know, we can just kind of coast along and everything's going to happen. It's an imbalance of the sovereignty of God. That God's going to do what He's going to do, case for us, where it doesn't matter. Right? That's hogwash. It does matter. Our problem is we approach ministry like we approached high school. Just enough to get by. No extra effort, no extra time, no extra study. One man said the dilemma of most pastors is their studies have been converted to offices. Say to our chippers, take heed to the ministry which you have received in the Lord. Received from where? A program? No. From the Lord. And you need to value what God gives you. You need to esteem it. You need to look at it as a sacred privilege. I was talking to a friend of mine, and he was telling me about a, one of our larger congregations in our fellowship, and they were in revival. And as they were in revival, there this cleaning lady, she was cleaning the church, and so the pastor of that church says, "Hey, well, why don't you take, why don't you take a day off?" This woman says, "You kidding me? This is my ministry." That's what I'm talking about. Whatever your ministry is this morning, fulfill it. Value it. Give your heart to it. It deserves your best. Make a fresh dedication. Not just to finish, but to finish well. Whatever happened to Archippus? And the limited study I had on this man is most commentators are pretty silent about him. But there is a conjecture that he ultimately was the pastor of a church, the Laodicean church. How many know things trickle down? If you're a lukewarm pastor, if you're not giving your hand to the plow in ministry, it'll affect your church. Now, I don't know. I hope not. The good news I bring you is, it's not that we start well. It's not even if we falter at times. The issue is finishing well. Paul says, I have fought the good fight. I've kept the faith. I've finished my course. When it's all said and done, there is nothing like a satisfaction and esteem. Not that it simply comes from, quote, results, but knowing that you've given yourself to what God has called you to for His purpose and His glory. And you say, God, I've given myself to the ministry that you've called me to. And as I've done that, I want you to know there's a hidden satisfaction. There's a hidden esteem. There's something that begins to compensate for all the hardships and difficulties. You know that God smiles upon that kind of ministry this morning. Take heed to your ministry that you fulfill it. The Lord bless you.